Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Uh, our scripture this morning is Mark 10, verses 13 to 31. Um, you can follow along in your pew Bible or just listen as I read. Now people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to touch, but the disciples scolded those who brought them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not try to stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. After he took the children in his arms, Jesus placed his hands on them and blessed them. Now as Jesus was starting out on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees, and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. The man said to him, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. And Jesus looked at him, and as Jesus looked at him, he felt love for the man and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and walked away sorrowful for he was very rich. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to in enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were astonished at these words, but again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. <clears throat> Peter began to speak to him, look, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. There is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions, 
and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage contains three encounters between Jesus and his disciples, and in each of these encounters, Jesus completely upends the expectations of his nearest and dearest, his most devoted followers. To most Christians, these are such familiar stories that we are just as likely as the disciples were to miss what these encounters have to teach us. So I'd like to invite us to take a close look and to prepare to be just as surprised as they were. In the first encounter, people are bringing children to Jesus. And we know this story so well that we are liable to shake our heads at how clueless the disciples were because we at least perceive ourselves as prizing children in our culture, so it may seem obvious to us that Jesus would welcome children. Silly disciples. But every culture has its hierarchies, and in Jesus' culture, children were considered unimportant. The disciples would have been on seemingly very solid ground in attempting to spare Jesus the intrusion of children who were interrupting more obviously important interactions on which Jesus needed to focus. To understand the disciples' position, we need to think of examples of people who we in our culture would feel similarly justified in dismissing. The people least worth our time and resources. Perhaps in this culture, given how we behave, that would be the poor, immigrants, refugees, people who we are prone to believe don't belong in spaces where important things are happening, who should go to the back of the line when scarce resources are being handed out in favor of those who have a right to be there. If we look at it this way, then we can more honestly put ourselves in the position of the disciples who were shocked that Jesus responded to them with indignance rather than gratitude. Let them come to me, Jesus insists. Those who, th- who you think have the least right to be here, whose needs are at the bottom of your list of priorities, those very people are the ones to whom the kingdom of God belongs. In fact, be like them if you want to enter into eternal life. Then he welcomes those children who are thought to be at the back of the line, takes them in his arms, tenderly places his hands on them, and blesses them. The second encounter is the flip side of the first. In that encounter, a rich man comes to Jesus. In Jesus' culture, as in ours, the rich man belongs at the front of the line. He is male. He has the means to make the appropriate temple sacrifices. His wealth is a sign of God's favor. And he even approaches Jesus humbly. He falls on his knees before Jesus and asks an open-ended question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus at first gives him a sort of standard answer. I read his response as a way of almost giving the guy a pass. Like, do you, do you really want to ask me this? You, you know the answer. You're a person of privilege. You've got social standing. Do what the law tells you to do. Basically, 
treat people with kindness. But the man really wants to know. At least he thinks he does. He tells Jesus, I've done all those things since childhood. I really want to know what it means to follow you. There must be something else. We can't see into this man's heart, but Jesus could. We don't know if it was really true that he'd followed all those commandments. Perhaps he had. We don't know if he really did sense that he was missing something and wanted to go deeper. Perhaps he did. But we are told that Jesus looked on the man with compassion and that his heart swelled with love for the man. And the response Jesus spoke in love was the last thing the man wanted to hear. Yes, there is something you're missing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come back and follow me. Honestly, when I've heard this story in the past, I've tended to feel a little smug and a little relieved because I'm not rich. Yeah, it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, but at least as to this, I have an advantage because I am not rich. Phew. But I've come to realize that actually this story does apply to me and to you, even if none of us qualify as rich by the standards of our culture, because I think Jesus is saying something about privilege. Think about it. What is the hardest thing for us to give up? And why is that? If you are a student of the concept of privilege, as I have been for quite some time, the answer is obvious. Perhaps it's hardest to see when you have it, and giving it up can be as challenging as it is for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. I have a particularly interesting vantage point for this because I have significant experiences on both sides of the question of privilege, as likely many of us do. I identify as a someone who has privilege in some ways. I'm well-educated and I'm a judge. I have a job that at least functionally is held in high esteem. I appear white. I am able-bodied and present as cisgender. On the other hand, I experience pretty serious marginalization in other ways. As a woman and as a person of color and as someone who has an unconventional family structure. I have lots of data for studying on both sides of the privileged question. When a judge, for example, listens to a story of a member of the public or their lawyer, the judge defines what is important, what is possible, what competence look like, looks like, what the priorities should be. The law guides us, but we interpret the law. Nothing requires us to resist the assumptions we bring into that interpretation from our relatively privileged social location. As to those who come before me and those who follow me, I can very easily insulate myself from any serious challenge to my point of view. In fact, that insulation will inevitably happen without serious effort on my part to prevent it, effort that I am under no pressure to make. 
For all of us judges, our unconscious biases may be especially difficult to recognize because of the deference accorded to us and because we occupy a more privileged social location than most of the people who come before us. It takes significant effort to loosen the grip our unconscious biases will have on our decision making. Most of us in this room enjoy some type of privilege in various contexts in which we operate. If you are white, for example, that accords you considerable privilege in this culture, privilege that you mostly won't even perceive. If you don't put in pretty considerable ongoing effort to embark on understanding how our culture privileges whiteness, and in fact, even if you do expend such effort, it's extremely unlikely that you will notice the benefits you enjoy that people of color can't count on. You will likely discount efforts to educate you about those benefits. You might even be offended by the suggestion that you've attained anything for reasons other than that you earned them justly. And you will have access to any number of ways to shut down any suggestion that any of the advantages you have are unearned. But here's what happens when white people, to go with that example, don't make the effort. And here I will describe what I regularly hear from people of color and what I sometimes experience myself. Nearly every day, people of color bite grooves into their tongues because they know that people are not ready to hear the reactions that pop into their heads. They know what it is to state an opinion and be regarded as though they've lost their minds. When that happens, as it frequently does, it's up to them to re rehabilitate their lost credibility if they can. They find often that they inadvertently cause offense by asking a question before they realize that they've challenged something about which, about something that white people perceive to be beyond question. They're frequently told that their ideas are unworkable, um, are not only unworkable, but naive and misguided. They know what it is to leave a meeting frustrated that there's no way to say what they mean to say and be heard, and yet knowing that no one even expects their frustration. They frequently struggle to express their ideas in a language that doesn't do those ideas justice because their language won't be heard. They have the experience, even after significant professional success, of being overlooked for important opportunities and assignments. Often it's clear to them that a decision has been made long before they were invited into the discussion, if they ever are. So they miss out on meaningful opportunities to influence outcomes. They may gravitate toward work that's being neglected and then find that their contributions are not valued. Their achievements frequently go unrecognized, while their perceived failures are chalked up as evidence that supports others' low expectations of them. When hiring decisions and political appointments are made, their names don't make the list or appear behind people who fit more closely with the norms of leadership that already exist. When they're criticized, it's up to them to sift through comments they might find deeply offensive or unfair for advice that they ignore at their peril. 
When they're advised to change their appearance or their manner of speaking or their strategy, it's up to them to struggle over how much of that advice they can even take without destroying too much of who they are. They don't get extra credit for weathering these difficulties or engaging in these efforts. Rather, they make these efforts because they must. As long as these experiences are such a regular part of daily life for people at the margins, all of us suffer because we are dealing with only a portion of the truth. Certain aspects of the truth have been ruled irrelevant and not worthy of attention, which means we're all living a lie. We're pretending to live in a community where every voice counts and every voice has a shot at being heard while we're simultaneously making it difficult or impossible for those at the margins to make themselves heard. We're imposing upon those least able to bear it a disproportionate share of the burden of bridging differences and hindering them from offering their best. And we're all diminished because we don't receive the benefit of their perspective if we're not open to challenges to our own. The rich man in this story is a stand-in for all of us who operate from a space of privilege. Jesus starts by telling the man what he thinks the man can hear. Basically, be a nice guy. Don't steal, don't tell lies, don't murder people. But when the man, operating from a place of privilege, presses Jesus for what he, can he, what he really can do, Jesus looks on him with great love and tells him the truth he knows will be the hardest for the man to hear. Give up your privilege. Give up your advantages. Give up everything that makes it possible for you to move through the world with ease everything that gives you a platform. Put yourself in the position of those who are marginalized. In fact, give them the benefits that you enjoy. If you really want to do the loving thing, go beyond the commandments and open up space for the truths that will be hardest for you to hear. The only way to do that is to give up the privileges that allow you to avoid grappling with the experiences of those at the margins. This is not what the man expected to hear, and it also isn't what the disciples expected to hear. After the man left, Jesus emphasized, he said twice, that it is especially hard for rich people to make it into the kingdom. Notice that I'm using a term that better describes what Jesus was describing. When we hear kingdom, we go right back to thinking in terms of hierarchies, and what Jesus is describing upends hierarchies in the most radical way possible. The disciples were shocked in their culture, as in ours, wealth and privilege work as an advantage and was even seen as a sign of God's favor. If rich people can't get in, who can? Jesus underlines the point. It is really, really difficult to enter the kingdom, 
To do so requires letting go of the things that insulate you from critique, that give you a platform, that elevate your status. We will resist this even when, like the rich man, we don't want to. Giving up our privilege is the way in, and yet we can't do it without help. Which brings us to the third encounter. Peter starts to think about it and realizes, well, hey, we're in. We've sacrificed everything to be with you. So we're okay, right? Jesus' answer to Peter is really interesting and perhaps especially relevant to us today in this community who have given up some of our privilege in order to ally with a marginalized community, the LGBTQ community, and have been essentially excised from our own community of churches. We answered what we heard as a call from God and have suffered a loss of community as a result. Like the disciples, we have sacrificed. So we'll be rewarded, right? Jesus doesn't exactly pat Peter on the back, and he doesn't rebuke him either. Essentially, Jesus opens up the analysis. He affirms that anyone who has sacrificed will gain more than they lost, but what they gain includes persecution. And when everything shakes out in the, hen, in the end, many of the last will become first, and the first will become last. Jesus more or less tells Peter not to rest on his laurels. Yes, it will be worth it, but you should also expect that in the short run, things will be hard. Don't concern yourself with the reward. Concern yourself with your work. And the work is in a relentless commitment to the truth that will continually catch us unawares. In each of these encounters, Jesus completely subverts what his disciples, his most devoted followers, expect. In each of these encounters, they weren't able to anticipate the direction of the Spirit, the direction of life, the direction of the kingdom. They were distracted by what their culture rewarded. They inadvertently bought into the system of privilege that surrounded them. They grabbed for assurance that they were on the right side. And Jesus warns them, children, he says, putting them in the category of the least of these, yet those to whom the kingdom belongs. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And the more privileged you are, the harder it is. Left to our own devices, our efforts at obedience and our idea of love will rarely see past the blinders of our own culture and the cushions of our privilege. We will find reasons to minimize the concerns of those at the margins, to deny their pain, to prioritize our pain or our comfort before theirs. We will insist that they be patient or suggest that if they had the right perspective, they would see that things have to be as they are. Jesus, here and everywhere, urges his disciples to open space for the whole truth by giving up the privileges that keep us from seeing the pieces of the truth that Jesus consistently treats as most important. 
Jesus warns that this will be hard. But anything less is not really love. Love demands a relentless commitment to the truth that we least anticipate and that we have the hardest time seeing. This is difficult, maybe especially so when we've sacrificed some of our privilege. We then may be distracted by the pain of our sacrifice, but our work is not done. We still enjoy the riches of privilege. Indeed, as to the split in our yearly meeting, as heavy as it is, we at West Hills Friends have assumed only a portion of the pain that our brothers and sisters in the queer community continue to absorb from a social location that involves much greater disenfranchisement than most of the rest of us experience. Jesus promises elsewhere in John 8.32 that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I cling to that promise. I will continue to catch myself resisting releasing my own privilege. And for every time I catch myself, there are likely many more times when I fail even to notice the advantages I enjoy and at whose expense they come. But with God, all things are possible. And if I learn to invite the Spirit to help me release my privilege, I will know the truth, and the truth will make me free. How can we learn to love with a relentless commitment to the truth we don't expect and are too privileged to see without help? How might God call us to the work of examining and releasing our privilege? How might God seek to heal our blindness that keeps us from experiencing a fuller understanding of what is true?